Our scripture reading before the sermon comes from the Gospel of John in the New Testament. I'll be reading from John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness, to witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have poured out upon us the new light of your incarnate word. Grant that this light, enkindled in our hearts, may shine forth in our lives Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, good evening. It is good to be back worshiping with you all. Uh, This last few weeks, at least for our family, has Uh, been a whirlwind as we have not had a single day uh, since Thanksgiving where one of our children hasn't been sick or feverish or vomiting. So uh, it has been quite crazy in our house and yet uh, it has still been by far and away my favorite time of year. People like to uh, bag on Christmas and how secularized it has become and there's some truth to that. But what other time of year can you walk through J.C. Penney and Coles and hear theologically rich songs about Jesus playing over the speakers for all the world to hear? Uh, This time of year, you can drive through the dark night 
And you can see the awe in the little children's eyes and the wonder as they see the houses that are lit up with little bitty lights in the darkness and discussing how those little lights point us to the great light who shone in the darkness even now. Heck, even this time of year, you have Baptist churches going through Advent, for crying out loud. It is a great time of year. Aside from Easter, uh, it may be the time of year when uh, people read their Bibles the most and when people actually read their Bibles best. As you all know, we uh, read our Bibles a little bit differently than some folks in the area would read it. Um, But at this time of year, as pastors are perusing through the Old Testament, and specifically the prophets, they aren't doing so to look for necessarily those timeless truths that they typically do, but even they are looking for the prophecy of the coming Son of God in the birth of the Christ child. It may sound foolish to a world looking on hearing this message, but for now, at least this time of year, you get to have non-Christians where they're in situations where they cannot avoid the story of Jesus. Now that being said, there are things about this time of year that can dull our senses. And if we're not careful, that's Exactly what can happen. And so this evening we are going to finish up the year and the Christmas season with Isaiah chapter 66. Now Isaiah is well known for his clarity in proclaiming the good news of salvation. And he's so clear that the book bearing his name is, as you know, often called the fifth gospel or the gospel according to Isaiah. The Apostle John hints at why Isaiah may have been so clear when he says that Isaiah saw his glory and he spoke of him. The book is filled with Christmas prophecies, if we can call them that. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, is in Isaiah chapter 7. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. It's from chapter 9. And so is, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In chapter 11, we hear that a shoot From the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. That's just a little bit of the examples from the first 12 chapters in the book of Isaiah. The section of prophecy specifically addressed to God's covenant people. So it's no wonder and we shouldn't be surprised that God's people throughout the ages have run to Isaiah to see God's promises, which indeed have been fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. If you search for sermons on those texts, you will find that they abound. If you search for sermons on Isaiah 66, however, uh, you will not be as lucky. Uh, As I was preparing uh, my sermon, um, a few of my go-to resources don't have anything to say about Isaiah 66, especially in a Christmas sermon. And I think there's a couple reasons for it, but one is that the promises that we're going to see in Isaiah 66 aren't just about a little baby Jesus who is meek and who is mild. 
Little baby Jesus lying in a manger in swaddling clothes. But the prophecies in Isaiah 66 are prophecies of a glorious king who is riding into battle in a flame of fire, furiously dispensing justice upon the rebellious nations. This prophecy is about the last Christmas where that baby is revealed to everyone as the God-man returning to slay his enemies and to set up his rule and his throne and his dominion forever and ever. It's this story that we have to remember even at, and I dare say, especially at Christmas. And so if you're willing and able, I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's word from the gospel of Isaiah chapter 66. Now, we were going to try to look at the whole chapter this evening, but there is no way we're going to have time. Uh, So we're just going to look at verses one through six. You'll need your Bibles or just listen, because what I put in the worship order is wrong. Hear God's word. Thus says the Lord. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who should be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. The word of the Lord. May God bless the reading and the hearing and the preaching of his word and even the grace to tremble at it. And all the church said, Amen. amen. Please be seated. All right, so I don't think it takes a rocket surgeon uh, to see why someone would not preach this text uh, in the Christmas season. We know that Christmas is a time for merriment, a time for rejoicing. But I want to propose to you that without this part in the last chapter of Isaiah's text, without this last Christmas, the reason for rejoicing that we've had every year doesn't hold up. So what we're going to do is first we're going to dig into Isaiah's world a bit to try to understand how they would have understand this prophecy in their time. And then, like always, we're going to see how Christ fulfilled even this text. And then finally, we're going to see how all of that makes Christmas worth celebrating and how we can prepare for the last Christmas together. So first, Isaiah's world. 
Now, admittedly, there is some debate about this, but for the most part, uh, scholars can agree that, uh, at least conservative scholars can agree that Isaiah is dated sometime around 740 B.C., Now, this was after Israel had divided into the northern and southern kingdoms, but it was before Judah went into exile. The first 12 chapters are prophecies to Judah, the relatively faithful remnant that had actually become unfaithful. They tell us about who God is, who these people are, and the reasons for the infinite disconnect between them. The next Twelve chapters are prophecies to the nations. So in a way, you can think of them like Christmas songs for God's people and the listening, unbelieving world around. God was telling Judah and he was telling the nations through Isaiah that he would judge them for their sins and their rebellion. But there would be salvation. And these prophecies of judgment and salvation are seen in chapters 25 through 27. Then you get a little historical moment where Isaiah tells the story of Judah's righteous king, Hezekiah, who Matthew tells us is actually in the line of Jesus. And then he goes on to encourage the exiles that despite their rebellion, God would reveal his glory to them. Chapters 50 through 65 tell these exiles how they could prepare for what was to come, especially how to prepare for the coming glory of the Lord. And this was by holding fast to God's covenant promises. Our text today, Isaiah 66, sort of captures all of that at the end, almost like a summary. If you look at the first two verses, they remind the hearers of who God is and who, not what, pleases Him. Remember, God's people had built a temple, and yet a large part of them had become unfaithful. In their minds, they thought that they had been doing a pretty stand-up job, but God wasn't pleased. If they had thought that they were great because they built His temple, God quickly reminds them of who He is. His words hearken us back to Isaiah's vision in chapter 6, the one we've been singing about. If you remember there, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on a throne with his robe filling the temple. The seraphim are proclaiming over and over the holiness of the Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And there you have Isaiah seeing the Lord in his temple. And yet the seraphim declaring that the earth is full of his glory. Here you have Yahweh reminding his people that just because he has chosen to dwell in the temple doesn't mean that he is limited to the temple. They need reminding of this just as God's people in all ages do that God is not limited to some confined space. It would be small minded of God's people to think that he could only dwell in something that we made with our hands. God's people in all ages have tried to limit him to their sphere of worship. And God will not have that type of thinking among his people. Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. He created all of this out of nothing. We've created nothing. 
The best we can hope to do is work with what we've been given. But rebuke wasn't the only reason for these words of God. You remember God's people were about to be sent into exile. They were going to be overwhelmed by a wicked enemy and they were going to be taken captive. They were about to be exiles in a foreign land. So they needed to know that their God wasn't confined to that space in the temple. He was bigger than that temple. He was and he is omnipresent. He was and he is and he will be everywhere even when it doesn't feel like it. They were about to feel alone in a foreign land, mocked for their faith. But they need not despair. God is over all of it. Heaven is His throne. And the earth is but a place for Him to rest His feet. So here in God's words, you have both rebuke on the one hand and comfort on another. The discerning parent knows that this is the way all discipline should look. There's a rebuke for the wrong that the child has done, but at the same time, a hope for comfort. It's a good father giving them a rebuke and a comfort. But who can have this hope? Who can hope to be comforted? Well, God tells us in verse 2, the one who is humble. The one who is contrite or lowly in spirit. The one who trembles and reveres his word. Again, we can see what this looks like in Isaiah's response to God in chapter 6. Isaiah was confronted with the thrice holy presence of God and he's undone. His response is the only response appropriate for someone confronted with the reality of who God is. When Isaiah sees the king, when he sees the Lord of hosts, what does he say? Woe is me, for I am lost. I am destroyed. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. It's this type of response that receives atonement. Isaiah, seeing the king, is humbled in the presence of this holy king. He is utterly aware of his sin and he trembles at the voice of the Lord. One of the great seraphim descends to Isaiah, touches his lips with a coal from the altar and declares Isaiah's sins atoned for. His sins are paid for. Now, it wasn't because of Isaiah's external actions. It wasn't even Isaiah's internal humility, his internal contrition or his internal trembling that was the basis of his atonement. But it's something external to Isaiah that is represented in the atonement for this uncleanness. Something had to be done to Isaiah. Something had to be done for Isaiah in order for his guilt and sin to be taken care of. True religion, God-centered religion, understands that our salvation is completely outside of us, completely reliant on what is done to us and what is done for us. Man-centered religion, religion 
that is arrogant enough to think that our guilt can be taken away because of how we feel or what we know or the good deeds that we do is something that God abhors. And he says as much in verses 3 and 4. What's unique is that here God condemns things that he has actually commanded. Slaughtering an ox, sacrificing a lamb, presenting a grain offering, a burnt offering. Those were all good things when done in accordance with God's design. God had commanded these forms for worship, and yet he despises these very forms that he has commanded. Why? He looks upon these acts of worship in disgust. He looks upon them as acts of murder and idolatry because they aren't done in the right spirit. God's people are just going through the motions. They're not humble. They're not contrite. They're not trembling at God's word. They've used his commands. They've used his forms to avoid him. They have the style. But they lack the substance. They've used God's word not to draw nearer to him in obedience, but to distance themselves from him and to avoid obeying other commands of his. God's own people. People think that if they do what he says in regard to the actions of worship, they can ignore all the other things that he has required of them. They've deceived themselves into thinking that they're actually worshiping God because they've fulfilled his requirements. When all they've done is checked the boxes of formalities rather than experience the changes that those outward expressions were meant to convey. But God isn't pleased. He searches minds and he knows hearts. He knows and he promises to bring harsh judgment upon those who engage in such idolatry. He's called out to them and they didn't answer. He's spoken to them and they haven't listened. They've ignored his word. And even though they look like on the outside, they are obeying to the undiscerning eye. Their lack of true response is anything but pleasing in God's sight. Again, we see in Isaiah 6 what a faithful response actually looks like. After having his sins atoned for and forgiven, the voice of the Lord says, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Someone who was not humble. Someone who was not contrite in spirit. Someone who did not tremble at God's word would not heed this call. They would put it off as someone else's responsibility or they would throw their hands up and say, whatever God wills, he will do with or without me. But someone who is humble, someone lowly in spirit and who takes God's word seriously would answer God's call, not because they thought it would merit God's favor, but because they know they're the beneficiaries of God's favor already. And that moves them to respond in obedience. That's why Isaiah and those like him respond, here I am, send me. 
Calvin says so ready a reply shows how great is that cheerfulness which springs forth from faith. Let's be clear though. This isn't cheerfulness in the mission that Isaiah has been given. But because the vision of the Lord is glorious, Isaiah's life is going to be anything but glorious. Isaiah is told to go preach the gospel to people who will refuse to listen. God says he is sending Isaiah to make their dull hearts duller. To make their deaf ears deafer and their blind eyes blinder. Their rote Heartless religion had already dulled their senses, and Isaiah's preaching was going to continue to do that. He was sent to preach to what has been called gospel hardened sinners. It's like a death sentence to a preacher. He loves the Lord. He loves God's people and he wants to see them respond in covenant faithfulness and to know the God he knows. But this isn't the task given to Isaiah by the Lord. And so he asks, how long? How long, O Lord? To which Yahweh replies, until my judgment has poured forth. You see a similar flow here in Chapter 66, God declares His glory. He looks upon the one who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at His word. And He rebukes the idolatry of the people that go through the God-ordained motions of worship. He then acknowledges a faithful remnant in verse 5, but then points out the way the faithful responders will be treated by their brethren. The unfaithful would not disagree with the faithful in their words. Even the faithless among God's people would raise their fist in affirmation of soli deo gloria. And they would answer the question, what is the chief end of man with the response to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? Even the faithless will go around proclaiming that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And yet in your text, in Isaiah 66, God says those are the ones that He is going to put to shame. It's terrifying. They have the right words. They have the right forms. But there is a group of people whose heart wasn't in it. And they hated the people who actually trembled at God's word, who actually obeyed him, who actually knew him. These idolaters would get defensive and they would get angry at the notion that something was wrong with their worship and their heart. And they could defend themselves with God's word, not because they tremble at it. But again, because they use God's word to avoid God himself. These people despised and they treated outcasts, anyone who actually knew God and loved to do his will. This was going on 2,700 years ago, and it goes on now. 
Beloved, let us not dare find our rest in our liturgies or our forms or our weekly communion or our church calendar or our creeds. They're the right words. They're the right forms. But don't find your rest in them. If we dare not tremble at God's word because of whose power and authority lies behind it, we should. If we are not moved to delight in our obedience, to grow in our knowledge of the Lord at every chance we get. If we find ourselves despising those who seem to have something that we do not. Then we may be more like the faithless remnant than the faithful one. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. God will judge those who are all form and no substance, who worship Him with their lips, but whose hearts are far from Him. So at this time of year, we can so easily go through the motions. We can fight to keep Christ in Christmas. We can go caroling and read our Advent readings and find our senses being dulled rather than sharpened to the wonders of Jesus. We must not leave Jesus in the manger, in that man-made building where we can control Him because He's safer there. We have to follow Him from Isaiah to the manger, to the cross, and through the grave. How do we do that? By humbling ourselves, contritely recognizing that our forms do sometimes replace our substance. Seeing that sometimes we do use some of God's commands that we really like to avoid being faithful to the ones that we don't really like. And by trembling at the word of God in Isaiah made flesh. Those of you who know this God. Those of you who know this tendency in yourself are probably asking questions. Like, am I humble enough? Am I contrite enough? Am I trembling enough? But God doesn't promise to look upon those who are enough of those things because it's not those things within you that make you savable. Just as it wasn't Isaiah's humble trembling that was the basis of his atonement, neither is yours. Something had to be done for Isaiah and to Isaiah that was external to him. And the same is true for you. For you will never be humble enough. You will never be contrite enough or tremble enough. But there was one who was. And there was one who did. And it's that same one that fulfilled Isaiah 66 perfectly. Not just at the first Christmas, but at the last one He will as well. In John 17, Jesus, the same Jesus, born in the manger, prays that He came to reveal His Father. To glorify Him. To make Him known just as Yahweh promised in Isaiah. We know that from reading the other Gospels that Jesus perfectly accomplished that work that He came to do and was now speaking with His Father, asking Him to restore Him to the glory that was His 
and to save and to sanctify his people with his word. John 17 is a recording of a conversation between the triune God, between God the Son, God the Father, and God the Spirit, one you can almost hear eternal echoes of hinted at in Isaiah 6. Who will go for us? To which Christ replied, Here I am. Send me. The great I am. In Arabic, this word send can mean make naked. Remove clothing. Which of course would be humiliating. And we have the humiliation of Christ, which is an old school way of referring to not necessarily his embarrassment, but to his dissension, to his becoming lowly, to the incarnation of the Son of God. Listen to what our catechism says of Christ's humiliation. Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a low condition made under the law undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Isaiah's humility, Isaiah's lowly condition, Isaiah's trembling wouldn't suffice. His mission wouldn't be enough to ensure that God would keep his promises. But Christ's humility... Christ's lowly condition, Christ's reverence for God's word and Christ's mission was. The writer to the Hebrews picks up on this when he says long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets like Isaiah. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And to which of these angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies footstools at your feet? Peter preached this at Pentecost when God poured out his spirit and birthed the church. Stephen saw this reality with his own eyes when he was stoned by the same type of people Isaiah prophesied against. Because Christ perfectly fulfilled what he came to accomplish, he wasn't only humiliated, he was exalted. He rose from the dead on the third day. He ascended into heaven. He was restored back to his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father. And it's from there which he will come to judge the world on the last Christmas. Because of the promises of God that were fulfilled at the incarnation of God the Son at the first Christmas, those who are humble and becoming more humble contrite and becoming more contrite and who more and more tremble with awe at this word made flesh can rest assured 
that God's promises will finally be fulfilled at the last Christmas. This message of hope and comfort, of salvation and judgment is promised by Isaiah's gospel. He declares that the promises of God for salvation for those who love Him and keep His commands, and yet He warns of judgment for those who do not. But the question remains, what does God tell His people to do while they wait? Well, that's what we were going to cover in the rest of the sermon, but we're obviously not going to have time to do that. So I encourage you to read Isaiah 66 this week through the lens that you've heard this evening. And in it, you will find that God tells His people to hold fast to His covenant promises by clinging to Him and living life in context of His church. Come to His table with His people that you may be Nursed and satisfied that you may drink deeply with delight from the overflowing stream of peace. It is there God promises comfort here with him at his table. Here you who tremble at his word will be comforted. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones will flourish like the grass and you will be strengthened to go forth from here to declare His glory among the nations. All this we do now in part, but one day, one day on the last Christmas, we will experience Him in His fullness. So let's continue in exile together, longing for that day. For Christ is in heaven, and the earth is his footstool, and he's invited you to dine with him there, even now, by his Spirit. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the good news that we read and hear in the Gospel of Isaiah. We thank you that you look to the one that is humble and lowly, and who trembles and reveres your word. We thank you that that person is Christ. We see in ourselves a lack of humility, a lack of contrition. We don't always desire your word and revere it. But you see us in Christ and we praise you for it. I pray. For us all, I pray that where we do see those things in our heart, where your word does divide us and reveal inside of us things that we don't like, that we would repent. That we would be becoming more and more humble, more and more contrite as we see you in your word. Bring us to Christ, make his reality even more real to us. Feed us at your table. Comfort us in your Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.